Hello and welcome back to the Elevate Music podcast. I'm Lucy Heyman and in this episode I'll be speaking to singer and musician Sophie Garner about her experiences with vocal health and surgery during her career. We'll also hear from speech therapist Tori Bernay about how you can maintain good vocal health. But first, let's hear Sophie's story. I left school having had the worst attendance in the entire school. I missed 66 days in one year. was rubbish at everything except for drama and singing, where I scored the highest grade of the entire year. And decided that that was my career, that I would be a professional singer. And I just hit the ground running, so it's been 27 years now. That's all I've ever done. So could you tell me a bit about some of the vocal challenges that you faced during that time? Because I'd not had any training, I really had no idea. The typical issue that I had was going from chest register to falsetto and really pushing in the break point 30, 40 songs a night, Smoky atmosphere at the time, because the smoking man hadn't come in. Of course. Drinking copious amounts of alcohol, obviously, because somebody asks you if you want a drink on a gig, you're not going to say Earl Grey tea. You're going to say, I'll have a beer, please. So acid reflux was a major problem for me, but I didn't know I had that at the time. So I had silent reflux, which happens while you're asleep, and it's coming up and bathing the vocal cords. So can you tell us a little bit about what acid reflux is? Acid reflux or esophageal reflux is where acid that should remain in the stomach to break down food comes up into the throat and basically is like a burning sensation. A lot of singers have it. It's made worse by eating late at night because you should have a three-hour gap from your last meal. So acid is being produced to break down the fats within the food and you're laying down so it's a recipe for disaster so that's coming up it inflames the vocal cords so many singers I know have it because that's something that a lot of musicians do isn't it they don't want to eat a heavy meal before the gig they eat afterwards and it's normally quite late and then go straight to bed absolutely it's the stop off at the garage ginst pasty yeah you know red bull to keep you awake from the long journey home Yeah, and then straight to bed, of course. So what did you do about it? I ended up having a vocal operation and then I had to rethink my diet. I actually went on a programme called The Food Hospital where they would treat medical issues with food. So I ended up having a programme that was put together for me which meant having a really good-sized breakfast My surgeon said, look, you need to be having your main meal in the day. And then it's about having tiny bits in between. So you need to really kind of retrain your body into knowing it's going to eat every three hours. So you regulate your acid reflux. So I ended up having to put nuts and seeds into my breakfast because they take a long time to chew. So then the stomach goes, oh... Stuff's coming down, but it's coming down slowly because it makes you eat slowly. I ended up having to raise my bed. So like typical, the old-fashioned yellow pages (laughs) that would go under each side, sleeping on your left, not wearing tight clothing. So I had to really kind of rethink, give up alcohol. That was the hardest thing, and I'll be really honest, hands up. I couldn't do that one. 
could we go back to your surgery? Could you mm. tell me a little bit about the process of that? I had to go to Sidcup to have endoscopies. So an endoscopy is you have a rigiscope, which is a really advanced endoscopy. It's a solid stick of metal with a camera on the end, which is able to see the vocal vibration at a really slow pace. It sees everything. Then you've got the other one that goes down the nose. I couldn't stomach that because I have a hyper gag reflex. So I would literally throw up. So it got to the point where the surgeon said, there's only one way around this, we're going to have to put you out, which we don't like to do. And I came round from the anaesthetic to my surgeon standing there and I was still not quite with it and he went, we need to operate. We're going to have to book you in. I had three months of rehabilitation. So how long do you reckon it was after the surgery when you felt like you could get your career going again when you could sing on a regular basis? About six months where I thought I've got me back. But then I developed, (laughs) I was left with my laugh. So when I laugh, I have this sort of high squeak, but I really love my laugh and I'm kind of known for it and it makes people happy, which is lovely. And I've lost bits of my range. I've gained notes. I've got a whistle register. So I've got that thing that Mariah Carey can do. But it was about six months. Did you find that your voice was affected by the emotions that you were feeling? Absolutely. I think we can tell a lot about people from the way they speak. We can pick up on people's energy. People that are really uptight, tend to... We, we hold stuff in our, in our throat. I'm very in touch with my own energy and... It did, it affected. And how, it affected. Did, how did you deal with that? Meditated, drank wine, <laughs> um, went to the doctors, went on antidepressants. And did that help? Yeah. And now I look back and I'm quite fatalistic and you, I think you don't realise at the time that maybe what you want isn't what's right for you. I'm made of strong stuff but I'm very sensitive and emotional. I don't know if I'd have handled it. I don't know if I would have handled the level of fame that I wanted and thought I was destined for. And after the op, I actually set up the UK's first and only support group for singers, Vox Op. I set that up with my speech and language therapist and my vocal coach. And together, because I'd, I'd said to him, there is no support. So we set Voxop up and it was really interesting because it was a support group basically for people to come, cry, scream, shout, get advice on what to do pre and post-op. So people would come in and go, I think I need an op. I'm in a West End show. Nobody knows. If I tell anyone, there'll be a stigma. It will spread throughout the West End And there was, there was this stigma, you know, you failed. And everybody that attended VoxOp, literally everybody said, I've had a loss of identity. Do you think that stigma is still there? I think it's getting easier than it used to be. But I don't think the music industry and I don't think producers, I don't think music management get it. 
I think they put singers that are up and coming through a horrendous schedule of touring, of being on, you know, planes, interviews in the day, singing at night, and they don't get it. Singers would say, my musical director in the West End show doesn't get it. It's like sucking sea. And it's gruelling, you know, if you're doing six shows a week, you know, matinee, it's not doable. It's not realistic. So it needs to change. How do you think it could change? By having vocal coaches as part of the team, having vocal coaches that are spoken to. And I have to say, I, I'm i a vocal coach for The Voice for ITV, so I do the auditions for the first process. And two of my close friends are the leading coaches on The Voice and they are involved with singers that have been signed. So there is more understanding and they will intervene if necessary and it, that's a difficult one and that's quite frowned upon, you know, how, how dare a vocal coach get involved? But when there's money at stake and careers on the line... They need to be spoken to. They need to be involved because they get it. They understand. How do you think it could be possible for the industry to grasp that? I think people like myself being on the platform and raising awareness. And that's what Voxop was beginning to start to do. And I actually want to take that further and be a spokesperson and spread that word help musicians get it, they understand it. What percentage of singers do you think experience vocal issues of some kind? Wow, gosh. I mean, career-affecting vocal issues. Every singer I know has had a problem. And when I say a problem, there is a real kind of spectrum. So at the top end of the spectrum, you've got the crikey, I've got to have time off, I've got to have a vocal up. Bottom end of the spectrum, I've got flu, a cold, I'm going to have to cancel gigs or sing through it, which is damaging. And you are risking those poor little vocal cords by singing through it, you know, and there's the, the show must go on line of thought. So everybody I know has had a problem within that spectrum. And I think there's people out there that don't talk about it. I know that for a fact. So would you say that you can have a full recovery after surgery? Me personally, I can't remember how I was before the op. I can't remember the Sophie voice I had. I listened to recordings. There are certain things I can't do. And it's almost like a bereavement. I miss what I've lost. But for you, you're still able to have a successful career. Mm, I'm still a gigging musician and I can sing 40 songs a night and I can go from like hardcore rock through to soul, through to Motown, drum and bass, pop. I could do the whole thing and that and that's a lot of work, but I've got a strong, robust voice. So yeah, I've got a career. So with all this in mind, if anyone's listening, how would you recommend that they can look after their voice, that they can prevent issues from happening? Don't buy things like anaesthetic sprays do not have cough sweets. These things don't touch the vocal cords. There are three things that every singer should do and these are the leading things. Enough sleep, tired body, tired voice 
steaming. So getting a steam inhaler. I bought myself a facial steamer. And then, and the other thing is water, water, water. You've got to keep everything hydrated. So if you were to give some advice to some young singers about how to protect their voice, what would you recommend? Get a vocal coach. People watch YouTube videos, but our voices are very individual. An exercise that might be great for one person could not do anything for another. And as a vocal coach, I see lots of different people. I see professionals that come for, you know, an MOT. They've got slight issues, so I'll give them various exercises to do. Having a vocal coach, regardless of your level, it's like when people say, oh, you know, well, you're a professional, you go to a vocal coach. Yep, just like David Beckham goes to a sports coach. You have to maintain your instrument. And you may not necessarily understand your instrument enough to self-diagnose on what you need. Um, Finally, what do you love about your career as a singer? I get paid to have a damn good time. I get to sing what I love. I believe what you put out, you get back. And being on stage, I have no problems because you have to be in the moment. It's almost like mindfulness. When you're on stage, you can't be somewhere else. You have to be there in the now singing and feeling the vibe of the musicians and having that moment where we call being in the zone where we're all looking at each other. And then I'll have audience members come up at the end and go, something really special happened there, didn't it? I'm like, yeah. And then when the audience is firing, that's just the best feeling. It's amazing. And see, I love seeing my students perform as well. I run three choirs and it's amazing to see these people with disabilities, with asthma, with dementia, kids that self-harm. I, I deal with all of that, stroke patients, and sometimes the tears are running down their face. And it's like, this is why I do this. This is, this is what I'm meant to do. This episode of the Elevate Music podcast is supported by Help Musicians, an independent charity that's been supporting musicians for nearly 100 years. Through an integrated programme of health and welfare and creative funding opportunities, the charity offers a lifetime of support when it's needed most. For more information on Help Musicians or to find out how to access support, visit helpmusicians.org.uk. Thank you to Estee Blue for your support on social media. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us at Elevate Music Pod on Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at elevatemusicpod at gmail.com. Now let's hear from Tori Burney. Could you tell me a bit about some of the problems that you see in the voice clinic with singers? Well, they're far ranging, like anybody else in the general population that comes in. There may be some more specific issues that we see that are more prevalent in performers and singers, but generally it's a whole gamut of issues from actual structural changes in the vocal folds, influences of other comorbidities such as respiratory problems, allergy, reflux problems, there may be musculoskeletal issues. And there may be changes such as vocal fold cysts or much more commonly just some bruising and swelling of the vocal folds or even more commonly in the performer group, muscle tension imbalance or muscle tension dysphonia. So biomechanical shifts that result in some vocal issues that a performer is presenting with. So those muscle tension issues, how are they caused? 
Well, through a variety of reasons. And some people will say they've always had some issues with their voice in certain parts of their range. Other people will have had a sudden onset to voice change. So we're looking at what was going on at the time when things started to shift in someone's voice. Often it can be related to workload, increase in use of the voice. It may be linked to emotional shifts and a lot of stress in someone's life may have an impact on what's going on in someone's body with an emotional response, with increased tension in muscles. Sometimes it's to do with someone who's been playing a role where they've been using their voice in an area that they're really not that comfortable in. So working very hard in upper range that hasn't really been somewhere that sits so comfortably with them, or in fact, in a much lower range that's comfortable. So a variety of reasons. And of course, we're seeing some people that are actually embarking on some more intensive training. So maybe training in some of the conservatoires or schools that have just got an increase in vocal load and haven't necessarily got that technical ability yet or that skill to underpin what they're doing with their voice. So would you say any of the problems that you treat are preventable? Often people are getting into trouble working in a very fatiguing setup or a less efficient setup because they may not have understood or had the training where they've been able to connect or embody that. And of course, often working with people who've had no training, who are just out there, who love music, love to sing and have just gone out there and, and got on with it. So having some good training and having a good vocal coach, I'm sure we'll chat about that later, but understanding technically what to do with speaking voice, because I'm not a singing teacher, I'm a speech and language therapist, but I see myself as a basic plumber, really. I'm just getting the setup right, getting it as efficient, sustainable and as economical as absolutely possible. And usually the imbalances have come because this is out of kilter. People often get into difficulties, they're getting fatigued, so they drive more pressure rather than improving airflow or they would do well to uh, incorporate some cool-down exercises, which uh, generally people are only just starting to do more of these days because there's a really good evidence base to show that that helps. You know, certainly managing stress and general well-being and health is really an intrinsic part of this. And it's all relative to how much someone's using their voice, their load, their, their demand, you know, all these sorts of things are other impacting features. So... We look at popular musicians in this podcast a lot and and obviously for a lot of them they haven't had formal training. So for a singer that hasn't necessarily worked with a vocal coach before, what are your top tips to stay really vocally strong and healthy? A good place is looking after yourself and really considering if you had an instrument that you were playing that was external, how you'd treat that, how you'd put it beautifully back in its case, how you'd keep it well oiled or you'd keep it well cleaned. And it's the same thing. I mean, it sounds quite basic, but managing your diet, your fluid intake, the most important thing of all, rest and sleep, managing yourself as if you're an elite performer. That's the advice I'm giving to the clients I work with taking vocal health really as seriously as you can so that you're in good shape and you're fit the next day. And this goes hand in hand with also workload, you know, how often you're expecting your voice to recover to perform. And if things aren't going so well, how you manage that. So if you're feeling fit and well, and you're feeling like physically you manage yourself well, then the voice is always going to reflect that. So going back to diet for a second, could you give us some guidelines around that? The biggest issue for performers working late is that you're working late and actually you're often starving. 
you're really hungry when you come off and you go home or you're grabbing some food before you uh, get in a van or a car to drive home. And Or if you're doing functions that you're given a nice meal while everybody's eating dinner, you have that in between your sets. And actually... This has an impact on what's going on with your digestion and also increases what we know to be risks of some reflux symptoms. Sometimes I speak to artists who have read about extreme diets, you know, cutting out all dairy products and, and you know, all caffeine in a way to sort of look after their vocal health. What, what are your sort of recommendations around that? Is that necessary for everyone or is that something that should only be done in extreme cases? Well, I think it depends on the person, actually. There's some nice piece of research that looked at whether dairy actually produced more mucus for people because that's what I see as a myth, actually. And the research showed that if you believe that you're going to have more mucus after you have some dairy products, then you will. You're more likely to feel the sensation of it. And there is a, a response straight away when you eat. We have a drink of water and that passes. It was only true, really, that you feel stickier and you are stickier if you, if you have an underlying respiratory disease. So if you're asthmatic, you may be more prone to feeling that that's a better thing to avoid to eat in your diet, managing your respiratory disease. But also, if you're performing, you're going to be less sticky. Caffeine is, is another one. It's another piece of research that shows that actually it isn't dehydrating at all. And people are, have a differing level of sensitivity depending on you know who you are. So some people might be able to have a coffee and go to sleep, they'll be fine. Other people have a coffee at 11 in the morning and can't sleep at two in the morning the next day. So saying a blanket advice saying, oh, don't have any caffeine isn't necessarily going to be correct for everybody. Some people will definitely have some caffeine or in fact alcohol and really notice that they have some reflux type symptoms. There is evidence for alcohol that it relaxes the lower esophageal sphincter. So we say try not to have that late at night, you know, if you know you've got some reflux risks. I think if you feel you've got a bit of an intolerance to something, it makes you not feel great, it affects your digestion, then I ask the person to experiment with their diet and see what they think. Obviously, quite a few of the musicians listening may be um, smokers and they may drink. So what would be your guidelines around those two behaviours? Smoking is the topic I chat a lot about with those performers that are smoking. But someone has to really want to stop smoking and understand the impact of that and how not just cigarettes but also smoking cannabis without filter, how hot that is on the vocal fold tissue and what impact that has. And it's pretty significant actually on someone's uh, vocal fold tissue. So I always say try reducing it. If someone's a heavy smoker, we look at targets for reducing as much as possible. And certainly those performers, those clients of mine who have support and really go for it, they notice within a few weeks a significant improvement in their range, their stamina, in vocal clarity. It's then that the difficulty often comes with how you maintain that two, three months, four months on. It's quite a slippery slope. Particularly the biggest issue is often social circle that lots of people are smoking after gigs and around or back at houses. And, and it becomes very difficult when that's around you a lot. And could you tell me a bit about alcohol? So if someone needs to have a couple of drinks before they go on stage, how will that affect their voice? Well, yeah, that's an interesting one. I'm always intrigued as to someone having to have a couple of drinks to go on stage. It's trying to manage rationale as to why that feels necessary. Um, I would be looking at what we could put into someone's vocal warm-up and setup to 
enable them to feel much calmer and ready to go rather than just, you know, having a shot or a beer and particularly drinking during a programme, during sets. Uh, I try and say, you know, if you, if you really need to have a beer, wait and have it afterwards. So can you tell me a bit about vocal warm-ups? You mentioned that there. What would you advise to singers that they include in their vocal warm-ups? A warm-up for somebody will depend on also what they've been doing in the day. If we're talking about a warm-up before a gig, different to a warm-up if you're going to be doing some home practice. So you are really getting the body, getting the vocal folds ready to work. This is a connecting with airflow, control, having a lovely stretch through the range. It doesn't need to be something that's going on for a long period of time. I like to put in stretch and release, so stretching through the vocal tract, through the body. If you hold tension in certain places, getting that moving, getting some breath and body work. So I work with accent methods, so getting airflow really moving, which is the most important thing, and working through range, and then working to get the voice uh, more connected. The cool down is a bit that we've got some really good evidence that cool down is helpful in really enabling somebody to bounce back again so they're in better shape 24 hours later. And that's early evidence based on a nice piece of research that Kitty Berdellini Abbott and the team did in the States, just showing that vocal fold inflammation seems to resolve more quickly with people who are doing intermittent voice use for three or four minutes every 20 minutes or so when they've stopped doing that high intensity voice use. So we incorporate glides down the pitch. It might be a lip trill, a tongue trill, some accent method, voice fricatives down the range, stretch and release out, just checking in then with sort of back into modal pitch voice. So it's nothing onerous or complicated, but it's just allowing a bit of downtime. In terms of vocal coaches, there are obviously hundreds and hundreds of vocal coaches out there. How would somebody start looking for a good vocal coach? I advise people to contact the British Voice Association, which is britishvoiceassociation.org.uk. They have a list of registered practitioners and those practitioners uh, all over the UK certainly have an interest in ongoing learning and it's a good place to start. Other routes would also be through Help Musicians UK or through BAPAM actually through the British Association of Performing Arts Medicine. We'll also have registered practitioners because I'm dealing with vocal rehabilitation particularly I'm often working alongside highly experienced singing coaches who have also had a significant training as part of voice clinic teams so they understand that in between stage between working with a speech and language therapist and going back to working with a singing teacher. What advice would you give to a singer who might be transitioning say from amateur to professional or they're suddenly seeing a huge increase in their workload? How can they protect their voice? It's very difficult particularly for young artists with management who have a very poor understanding of voice and what people can actually cope with. And so I can't stress enough the importance of having a good and experienced vocal coach linked in and linked in early. It's uh, very sensible and even having some support through BAPAM for that, how someone might find someone like that. Because often there needs to be an advocate in how to manage someone's schedule and understanding about it's not just the performance schedule, it's all the other stuff around it. 
including travel time, lack of sleep, poor diet, not enough time for rest and repair. It takes about 36 hours for collagen repair in the vocal fold tissue in an ideal world. So, you know, when you've got back-to-back gigs and you're travelling through the night or flying, this is when things start to go a bit wrong. So having time to have enough rest in between and to also have a very, very good regime of technical singing style and also a good sort of voice care vocal health program that's that's the most important thing and you know with someone without difficulties finding a good coach that's experienced someone will support them through that and that's the best advice. Sophie spoke about you know the very challenging experience of surgery how common do you think that is? We try to avoid surgery unless it's absolutely necessary. We look at every other approach Patients go through a minimum of a course of sort of four to six sessions of voice therapy. If not more, they'll work with a vocal coach if they haven't already got one in order to try to get the best setup, the best biomechanical setup vocally to reduce any swelling, any excess swelling or all the compensatory behaviours that are going on to cope with something that may look like it needs surgery. And that's what we try to avoid because it's a big deal. It is a very challenging experience for a performer. And often we're waiting for the time is right. If someone's actually got a heavy schedule, we, we're waiting if we do need to do it for that right moment, which could even be nine to 12 months in advance if it's needed. So a lot of the work I do is working to get things into the best possible shape so that if surgery is needed, then the person actually responds quite quickly and responds quite well within that time frame afterwards. And finally, if someone listening has an issue with their voice, where would you recommend that they go? Any problems with voice, one has to be referred by your GP into a voice clinic. The specialist voice clinics, you can look for a list. It's on the British Voice Association. Same website has a list of all the voice clinics in the UK. And at least in a specialist voice clinic, you will be seen by an ENT consultant, specialist laryngologist and a speech and language therapist in the room for diagnosis and being seen in a general ENT clinic where the equipment is not of the same standard as it would be in a voice clinic is really not going to give you the best outcome. It is difficult. So searching for that and going in and speaking to a GP about that and asking, please, could you refer me to this local clinic is the first port of call. If that's still difficult, then we suggest people contact BAPAM, who runs some specialist clinics for performers with a GP physician understanding these vocal issues. And this is a really excellent route if local GP is uh, finding it difficult to look at where to refer. There are a handful of singer specialist voice clinics in the country and that's also listed on the BAPAM website and I'd advise people to have a look there. Tori, thank you very much. You're welcome. If you need help with any of the issues that have been raised in today's episode, you'll find links and signposts to the services that Sophie and Tori spoke about in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts as it helps other people to find us. And of course, you can get in touch on social media at Elevate Music Pod on Twitter and Instagram. This podcast was produced by Elevate Music and Listen in partnership with Help Musicians. Thank you for listening and see you next time.